Hello and welcome to today's reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for Wednesday, January 31st, 2024. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik, and here's our first story. It's entitled, A Week of Celebration. Dubuque students participate in a variety of activities to mark Catholic Schools Week. It's written by Elizabeth Kelsey. Stella Robbins, age 12, wrote the words, Trust in the Lord, on a small wooden disc Tuesday at... Moscelli Catholic Middle School in Dubuque. The seventh grader then used red and pink markers to decorate the disc with circles and ovals. What should I do on the back? She asked her teacher, Maggie Voorhees. Do you want to write a Bible verse? Voorhees asked, and Stella nodded. Once her creation was completed, Stella placed the wooden disc in a bag along with a paper containing a Valentine's Day poem and tied it shut with a red piece of yarn. She and her classmates were creating Valentine's Day pocket hugs for local religious sisters and retired priests as a service project for the school's celebration of National Catholic Schools Week this week. Activities are planned across Holy Family Catholic schools in honor of the week, including vocational speakers, prayer services, many courses on various topics, a dodgeball tournament, and more. It's good for our students to recognize the gift that they have been being able to attend a school that allows them to practice their faith, said Masicelli Principal Daniel Thole. This week is a tangible reminder of that for them, and a week of celebration for all of us. According to Masicelli student support teacher Jennifer Elbert, students at the school were completing a total of 600 pocket hugs on Tuesday, which would be delivered to local retired priests and members of the Sisters of St. Francis, Sisters of the Presentation of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and Sisters of Charity of the Blessed Virgin Mary. We have such a rich Catholic community around us, so we wanted to give back to those who are constantly praying for us, Elbert said. Sienna Engelman, age 13, wrote, God loves you on her wooden disc and added a red heart. She said she enjoyed the Religion B Monticelli held Monday to kick off National Schools Week, where students answered questions about various aspects of the Catholic faith. I'm really lucky to be able to come to a Catholic school and learn about my faith at school, Sienna said. Nisha Koneru, age 13, is looking forward to dance that will be held at Masicelli on Thursday night. She said community is her favorite part of attending a Catholic school along with the chance to attend church weekly. It's a good gathering time, she said. Other Catholic schools in the area also plan various activities in honor of National Catholic Schools Week. Marcel Kelkulki, principal of Beckman Catholic High School in Dyersville, said students could participate in dress-up days and a student versus staff basketball game. The school's weekly mass today is open to the public, and on Friday, February the 2nd, an academic award ceremony is slated. It's a great way to help ground us and remind us why we do what we do in a Catholic school, how we integrate faith into the daily lives of our students, Kilkulki said. Kilkucky said one of the key challenges facing Catholic schools is also a primary concern among other public school peers, recruiting and retaining staff. The teacher shortage is real. We've all noticed it, he said. We need to work on helping people continue to see education as a good career choice. And with that comes the question of how to continue to offer the opportunities for students that we want to be able to offer while in competition for employees. 
According to National Catholic Education Association, Catholic school enrollment across the U.S. increased by 0.3% from the 2021-2022 school year to the 2022-2023 school year. That marked the second year in a row that enrollment ticked up slightly through National Catholic School enrollment. Though, excuse me, though National Catholic School enrollment was still 2.6 percent lower than the 2019-2020 school year, Holy Family saw similar trends with pre-kindergarten through 12th grade enrollment increased by 3 percent this fall over last year, though the total figure of 1,846 was down 2 percent over the five-year period. This year, many Catholic schools in the Dubuque area have welcomed at least some new students, thanks to Iowa's new education savings account program signed into law by Governor Kim Reynolds last year. Students approved for the ESA program receive an amount equal to the per-pupil funds allocated by the state each year to pay for tuition, fees, and other expenses at a state-accredited private school. Those ESAs opened the door for many families who may have dismissed Catholic education because finances were a stumbling block or a hurdle, Kilcucky said. That opportunity is now available for them to take a second look at Catholic education, and we feel that we provide an opportunity for students to be successful academically and spiritually as well. Last week, the Iowa Department of Education announced that 16,757 Iowa students used an ESA at an accredited non-public school as of the October 1st certified enrollment date, including 676 students residing in the Dubuque Community School District. Holy Family officials reported in the fall that the system had about 530 students using ESAs, including 128 new students. Data, though, was not the focus of this week's activities that were aimed at celebrating all students. No matter how you, as a student, got here, no matter what financial aid or other support you're receiving, the fact that you're here is what we're celebrating, Thole said. Our next story is entitled, Art Events to Highlight Local Black History. Heritage Works, Art for Us, Team Up to Present Results of Ongoing Black Heritage Survey. It's written by Grace Neeland. A community-centered collaborative hopes to leverage the arts to increase accessibility and engagement around Dubuque's black history. Heritage Works and Art for Us, a Dubuque-based arts agency, have joined forces to showcase results of the city of Dubuque's ongoing black heritage survey in a project titled Our Ancestors' Wildest Dreams. The plan is to integrate survey findings with various art mediums to uplift local artists and showcase the myriad historic and present-day contributions of Dubuque's black community. What we're hoping to highlight as a community, especially for the younger generation of black people, is that you can come to Dubuque and make a great contribution, just like the contributions in the Black Heritage Survey, said Brianna Thompson, founder of Arts for Us. The first phase of the project launches this week with a spoken word poetry showcase set for 8.30 p.m. Friday, February 2nd at Smokestack, 62 East 70th Street, 7th Street. The showcase will complement the second annual Black As You Are art exhibit set to debut at Smokestack earlier that evening. Three poets will perform at the showcase, Christine Baker, Deshaun Brown, and Ja'Kyra Bryant, and each poem will be inspired by the Heritage Survey. 
Some of the poems are reflections on the findings overall, Thompson said. Others will reflect on specific pieces of black history, such as local listings from the Negro Motorist Green Book, a 20th century guidebook listing safe places for African-American travelers to visit without fear of persecution or prejudice. There's such a vibrant history here, Thompson said, and it's a history that needs to be told and needs to be told in an authentic, positive way. Work on the Black Heritage Survey started in 2022 and is expected to round out this year. Initial findings are available online in the form of an interactive map found at tinyurl.com slash dbqheritage. Chris Hap Olson, assistant planner for Dubuque and project lead for the survey, said the survey differs from most in that it catalogs not only still standing historical locations, but also sites that no longer exist in their original form. For this survey, we went and researched historic people and the places that were important to them, she said. Sometimes that means that we have a place that has been demolished over time, but that should still be celebrated. A school for black students previously existed in the basement of a church located at the corner of 7th and Locust Streets, for example, which is now the site of the Dubuque Museum of Art. The Prince Hall Mason's Lodge No. 29, the local arm of the largest and oldest African-American fraternal organization in the U.S., met in what now is a residential home on University Avenue. The survey also outlines the contributions of black historical figures such as Ruby Sutton, a well-known community organizer, and Henry Rose, a local Civil War veteran and doctor remembered for his efforts to the Union cause. Dwayne Haggerty, CEO of Heritage Works, said it's those stories and others that Heritage Works hopes to highlight through, uh, through its collaboration with Art for Us. A lot of studies get done and are put on a shelf where not much more is done with them, he said. With the Black History Survey, since it deals with a lot of history that has been glossed over in the past, we thought it was really important to use it in a way that inspires and engages people. Future phases of the collaboration include expanding into other art mediums, Haggerty said, such as fashion, sculptural design, and more. The goal is to engage a larger audience with each artistic display, he said, and a particular, with a particular goal of engaging more young people. All artists are compensated for their efforts, he added, as recognition of their talent and time. In addition to funding provided by Heritage Works, the project also has received approximately $14,000 in grant funding from various sources. We're really excited to see people engaging around this survey, Olson said. We applaud any effort to get this information out to the public so it can be rebranded into the history, a historical story of Dubuque. The final story from the front page of the Telegraph Herald is entitled County Ways Costs of Facilities Projects. Replacement of Courthouse's HVAC system is among most expensive improvements sought. This is written by Benjamin Fisher. The Dubuque County Supervisors must decide whether and how much to invest in millions of dollars worth of potential facility upgrades and maintenance as they craft a budget for the coming fiscal year. Among the needs Dubuque County Government Department heads have presented in funding requests for the fiscal year starting July the 1st is a replacement of the courthouse's heating and cooling system, which currently is so loud and produces such inconsistent temperatures that officials say it disrupts court proceedings and county business. 
but cost estimates for the heating, ventilation, and air conditioning replacement project become more expensive with each revision, and other county facilities also have pressing maintenance needs according to the department heads. With supervisors concerned about budget capacity due to expected revenue impacts of 2023 state property tax reforms, the need for county pay raises, inflationary pressures, and other factors, prioritizing spending is expected to be complicated. The supervisors have known the courthouse's current HVAC system is faulty for some time, as have the other county department heads, elected, and court officials and staff who spend more time there. When I became supervisor, I couldn't hear anything in this room, said Supervisor Ann McDonough, acknowledging her hearing loss, which contributes to the problem. So all of this HVAC units behind us is shut off when we're in here. So in this room, it is always too hot or too cold. McDonough said she could deal with the current system, but that the noise level and temperature have caused more problems more consistently for other government functions. The judges told me that it is It interrupts the way that justice is presented in courtrooms, she said. They have to turn off the units to hear. They have to instruct jury members to bring coats or that they will have to work through lunch so they can leave before the heat gets to them. We are making combinations in this building at every level because the current systems are deeply flawed. Over the past year, the county has contracted with engineering firm Shive Hatterley to develop different options for replacing the courthouse HVA system. The most recent cost estimates presented to the supervisors this week during a budget work session included two options, one for about $3.7 million and another for about $4.65 million. The main difference between the two, according to County Auditor Kevin Dragato, who oversees the county's facilities department, is that the more expensive option would cycle fresh air into the courthouse. Currently, 100% of that air inside the courthouse is just being recirculated, said Stephen Setledge of Shive Hattery. That increases the carbon dioxide and nitrogen rate of the air inside. If you were to bring that up to code, you would have to replace the air. And not only is it a code requirement, it is also known to increase productivity of the people in that space. McDonough again recalled the impact COVID-19 had on staff due to the air never being replaced. It rolled whole departments, she said of COVID-19. The further away we get from the days where we all wore face masks, maybe it's easier to forget. The current system was installed in 2016, but according to both Supervisor Harley Potoff and Dragato, it was chosen because it was the cheapest option. We're largely here because the county spent essentially no dollars on a low-quality system, Dragato said. Nobody should have to replace a system that's less than nine years old. Potoff said the current system being relatively new made replacing it for such a high cost hard on him. I just cannot believe we can be here just this many years later and have to replace everything, he said. The two options presented this week are not necessarily the only ones from which the county will have to choose. Supervisor Wayne Kenneker plans to speak with another local vendor again in search of a lower cost option. The vendor and his company were going to be in the courthouse doing some other work, he said, noting that he talked to the vendor about features of different HVAC models. There were some other options. The Board of Supervisors will resume the HVAC discussion at upcoming meetings. Meanwhile, other departments have presented expensive facilities improvements coming down the road. 
While the final cost estimates are not done, County Engineer Russell Weber has requested $300,000 in the coming fiscal year for upgrades to current buildings on the shop property in Key West, which the county purchased from the Iowa Department of Transportation last year. He showed supervisors photos of holes in load-bearing pillars of one building and equipment having to be parked diagonally to fit inside. Weber also requested $900,000 for the construction of a new building on the property built to fit newer and larger equipment. The Conservation Department and IT Department have also expressed needs for facilities improvements at numerous properties. The Board of Supervisors is considering incurring debt for their facilities needs but have have reached have not yet reached a decision. From the Dubuque and Tri-State page, we've got an article entitled Conlon Says Vision, Curiosity, Compassion. Telegraph Herald First Citizen says Dubuque community is rich in generosity. This is written by Elizabeth Kelsey. When Tom Conlon's daughters reflect on the lessons their father taught them, the importance of volunteerism and philanthropy tops the list. He's always cultivated a sense of wanting to give back and how important that is, said his daughter, Sarah Conlon. We're just thrilled for him to get the recognition for having such a big part in everything Dubuque. About 160 people packed the Diamond Joe Casino Harbor Room in Dubuque on Tuesday to honor Tim Conlon, the co-chairman and CEO of Conlon Construction, as the recipient of the 54th Annual Telegraph Herald First Citizen Award. Tim, age 75, attended St. Columbkill Catholic School, graduated from Wallert Catholic High School, and took courses at Loris College before spending years traveling and working. His stops included studies at United States International University in San Diego, California, and construction work in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and Mankato, Kansas, before returning to Dubuque with his family in the late 1970s to work with Conlon Construction. The company, founded by Tim's grandfather in 1903, has constructed buildings at universities, hospitals, casinos, companies, and senior housing developments in the tri-state area. It's a great fortune for us to be able to meet so many wonderful people and work with them to solve their issues, whether it's new buildings or innovations or whatever it is that helps them change their lifestyle, Tim said in a speech during the reception. They, in turn, inspired what I became involved with through the various boards and commissions I've been on. Tim has volunteered, served on boards of directors, helped lead fundraising campaigns, and otherwise provided assistance to a variety of local civic and nonprofit organizations. These include Clark University, Dubuque Community Y, Dubuque Dream Center, Dubuque Museum of Art, Hillcrest Family Services, Hills and Dales, Julian Dubuque International Film Festival, Steeple Square, and St. Mark Youth Enrichment, among others. Nancy Van Milligan, President and CEO of Community Foundation of Greater Dubuque, said at the event that Tim was a founding board member of the foundation and served as board president from 2012 to 2014. Tim is a builder who brings more than just tools to the job. He brings vision, curiosity, and compassion, she said. He has the ability to instill in others the same spirit of selflessness and generosity that he brings to everything he does. Poppy Conlon, another of Tim's daughters, works with him at Conlon Construction and continually is impressed by her father's energy, enthusiasm, and humility. 
He's still joining boards and committees. He's still so involved. He'll never not be because he loves what he does and he loves this community, she said. He's very sincere and he's very humble, which goes a long way. In his speech, Tim described himself as one part of a community rich in generosity. Like the river over here, there's a constant current of goodness that flows out of the city of Dubuque, and we are all a part of that, he said. What I have come to learn about this award tonight is that it is not about one person who stands among all of you as a standout, but is more of a representative of every one of us and the work that we do for the city of Dubuque. I'm very proud to be a part of that with all of you. Next is an article under the Ask Telegraph Herald, What Happened to Statues in Platteville City Park? It's written by Michelle London. Question, what happened to the statues in Platteville, Wisconsin City Park? Answer, the eight brown statues dedicated on July the 4th, 2012, were the result of fundraising efforts by the Platteville Veteran Honor Roll Association. The statues, representing Americans in every armed conflict since the Revolutionary War, along with the Platteville Fire Department memorial statue, were removed and placed in climate-controlled storage in November. Kathy Kopp, the secretary of the association, said it was time for some maintenance as well as a few repairs. They're actually made out of fiberglass and bronze-coated, so they're not fully bronze statues, she said. The biggest factor has been Mother Nature. Much of it has been environmental factors. They need to be cleaned, and unfortunately, they had some damage. Some of it deliberate, but the elements definitely played a major factor. The stone footings and the memorial obelisk have remained in the park. There's nothing wrong with the stone footings, just the statues themselves, Cop said. They're tucked away in a climate-controlled atmosphere so they can dry completely out. Cop said the original sculptor, Sparta, Wisconsin resident David Oswald, is working with the group to assist with repairs and maintenance. We currently have a committee that is working with David to determine what needs to be done with them, she said. Once we get that report back with some cost estimates, we would know how to move forward with repairs and cleaning. Cop said the Veterans Association has determined that the statues will need regular maintenance in the future. We have come to the realization that they will probably be on a regular rotation for routine maintenance probably every 10 years, she said. Cop said Oswald has agreed to assist with the maintenance of the statues in the future. We hope to have them reinstalled by Memorial Day and that we can rededicate them on the 4th of July, she said. That's the plan, anyway. The Platteville Veterans Honor Roll Association has established a maintenance fund for the statues. We know this is going to be an ongoing thing, Cop said. We want to be sure those statues are taken care of properly. Anyone interested in donating to the maintenance fund can contact Cop at area code 608-642-9227 or email Kathy Kopp, K-O-P-P, at platteville.org. Under the News in Brief heading, Dubuque man sentenced to jail for high-speed chase. A Dubuque man has been sentenced to 60 days in jail for leading officers on a high-speed chase. Tobias D. Deerstone, age 20, recently received the sentence from Iowa District Associate Judge Mark Hostager in Iowa District Court of Dubuque County after pleading guilty to one count of eluding. Deerstone also will serve two years of probation per Hostager's ruling. The charge stems from a high-speed chase that took place July 27th in Dubuque. 
Court documents state that an Iowa Patrol aircraft pilot was working on a speeding project in Dubuque and spotted a group of motorcycles headed south on John F. Kennedy Road at high speeds. A trooper on the ground saw one motorcycle leading the group who pulled a wheelie on the street. The trooper turned on his emergency lights and the motorcycle accelerated south on JFK without stopping, documents state. The driver ran a stop sign at University Avenue extension as well as a red light at the intersection of University Avenue and Dodge Street. Documents state that the motorcycle reached speeds of 85 miles per hour in a 45 mile per hour zone on Dodge Street while pursued by the trooper who activated both his lights and siren. The trooper then stopped pursuing the motorcycle and let the aircraft track its path. The aircraft pilot eventually advised the trooper on the ground that the motorcycle drove behind a residence in the 1000 block of Barbalee Drive. Documents state that the trooper went to the residence and located the driver, identified as Deerstone. Deerstone was then arrested. And Dubuque man sentenced to nine years in federal prison on firearm charge. A Dubuque man has been sentenced to nine years in federal prison for unlawfully possessing a firearm. Eric Thomas, age 49, recently received the sentence in U.S. District Court in Cedar Rapids after pleading guilty to one count of being a prohibited person in possession of a firearm, according to a news release from the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Northern District of Iowa. U.S. District Court Chief Judge Leonard Strand also sentenced Thomas to a three-year term of supervised release after his prison term. There is no parole in the federal system. The press release states that at his plea hearing, Thomas admitted that he possessed a pistol in January 2023 despite having multiple felony convictions and the fact that he was an unlawful drug user. The release states the pistol was located in a search of his home on January 23, 2023, along with a mixture of cocaine and heroin. Now we turn to the opinion page, and we've got an opinion that's entitled, Consequences Abound If Math Is Done Incorrectly. This is written by Ed Zaccaro, who graduated from Oberlin College and has a master's degree in gifted education from the University of Northern Iowa. He is the author of several math books, including one on the misuse of statistics. His work is currently being used around the world and has been translated into several languages. It starts with a quote. Mathematics is not about numbers, equations, computations, or algorithms. It is about understanding. And that quote is attributed to William Paul Thurston. During the 19th century, the oil found in Wales was in demand because it was used to not only light lamps and streetlights, but it also lubricated the machines that were an integral part of the Industrial Revolution. Whalers quickly depleted the Atlantic Ocean of Wales, so the whaling ships of New England were forced to travel to the Pacific Ocean on voyages that would often last as long as two or even three years. The whaling ships carried equipment for not only hunting and killing whales, but also for processing, storing, and preserving their catch. Although these voyages were dangerous, the potential financial rewards meant that men were more than willing to leave their families and friends for years at a time. Inexperienced men were typically offered payments of one two hundredth of the profits for those long trips in the Pacific Ocean. Occasionally, when a young man was offered one two hundredth of the profits, he would bargain with the captain or owner. 
I would love to join your crew, but one two hundredth of the profits is not enough. If you would be willing to pay me one three hundredth of the profits, I will join your crew. Some of the men had so little understanding of mathematics that they actually turned down one two hundredth of the profits and held out for one three hundredth instead. One three hundredth of the profits is significantly less money than one two hundredth of the profits. Of course, the owners quickly agreed to these demands and wrote up the contract. You drive a hard bargain, but I want you on my ship and I will agree to pay you one three hundredth of the profits instead of one two hundredth. I'm doing this under one condition. Do not tell any other crew members about this agreement because they might get jealous. The following story also shows the importance of doing mathematics correctly. Air Canada Flight 143 was about to depart for Edmonton, Canada when the flight crew realized that the jet's fuel gauge was broken. Instead of repairing it, they used a technique called a drip where the fuel level is checked by using a dipstick device similar to how we check a car's oil. Both wing tanks were measured and it was determined that there was a total of 7,682 liters of fuel in the two tanks. The pilots knew that 22,300 kilograms of fuel were needed for their flight, so they found the weight of 7,682 liters by multiplying by what they thought was the correct conversion factor of 1.77 to get a total of 13,597 kilograms. Next, they subtracted that from the 22,300 kilograms and converted that answer to liters. After finishing their math, they added 4,917 liters of additional jet fuel and Flight 143 took off. During the flight, the pilots received several fuel pump warnings, followed by the complete failure of their left engine. Soon the unthinkable happened. Their right engine also failed and the pilots were forced to try and land a 132-ton glider. The jet was losing altitude so quickly that it could not reach the closest airport, but fortunately, the pilots were able to crash land the plane on an abandoned Royal Canadian Air Force runway. The plane sustained significant damage during the landing, but the crew and all 61 passengers survived. After an investigation, it was determined that the jet ran out of fuel because the pilots used an incorrect conversion formula. They used the conversion number for liters into pounds, not kilograms. If they did their mathematics correctly, they would have added 20,194 liters of fuel, not 4,917 liters. Doing mathematics correctly can have serious consequences. You are listening to the Dubuque Telegraph Herald on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All materials heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, please give us a call at area code 515-243-6833. Now we turn to today's obituaries. First, we remember Richard W. Kuhn. With great sadness and tremendous pride in a pastoral life well-lived, the family of Father Richard Dick William Kuhn, K-U-H-N, regrets to announce his peaceful death. Father Kuhn died at the age of 95 at Stonehill Health Center in Dubuque on Friday, January 26th at 4.50 p.m. The fourth of eighth children and the oldest son, 
Father Kuhn was born at the family farm in Osage, Iowa on March 18, 1928. He faced his first test at his baptism with ice-cold water from the frozen baptismal font, which was temporarily on the porch of the parish rectory due to a fire in the Sacred Heart Church. Father Kuhn worked on the family farm and was a football player and one of the most popular young men at both Osage High School and later at Loris College in Dubuque. He discerned his vocation while at Loris, and upon graduation, he entered Conception Seminary College in Conception, Missouri. Father Kuhn was ordained as a Roman Catholic priest on May 17, 1953. He served in dozens of parishes throughout the Archdiocese of Dubuque. Father Kuhn was most recently pastor of St. John the Baptist Catholic Church in Piasta and of Holy Family Catholic Church in New Melloray. While at St. John's, a major accomplishment was leading the effort to build the Seton Catholic School Piasta Center. For over 70 years, Father Kuhn was the bulwark of his close family and the epitome of a dedicated and faithful servant in the Archdiocese of Dubuque, touching countless lives in a warm and positive way. He was well known for never forgetting a face or name and always being ready with a witty joke or pithy one-liner. Proud of his Irish heritage, he often entertained anyone that would listen with a spontaneous song. He retired from St. John's and Holy Family in 2012 at the age of 84. Father Kuhn was a Knight of Columbus and a strong supporter of the Order and its principles of charity, unity, fraternity, and patriotism. He served as Council-slash-Assembly Chaplain and Iowa State Council Chaplain. Along with his many assignments in the Archdiocese of Dubuque, Father Kuhn was exceptionally proud to have served as a U.S. Navy Chaplain for six years. Following his commissioning at Newport, Rhode Island, he served first at Naval Air Station ADAC, Alaska, and then the Naval Station in San Diego, California. During his naval service, Father Kuhn was proud of the fact that he was the oldest Catholic chaplain and oldest lieutenant in active Navy service. In his retirement, Father Kuhn returned to San Diego for two years as a contract civilian chaplain for the Navy. Upon his return to Dubuque County, he was active in the local American Legion Post 6. To emphasize the pride he held for his naval service, he clearly expressed his desire for burial in his service dress white uniform. He traveled extensively throughout his life, often visiting family, friends, and loved ones. One had to be careful not to invite him unless they were ready for him to show up. He also visited missionary friends from seminary and college days and brought many pilgrims to shrines and holy places. After his retirement, Father Kuhn energetically continued his service, filling in as need for as needed for mass and hearing confessions at many parishes. He resided in his former rectory in Fairley, Iowa where he had earlier served as pastor. In his final year and a half, he was pleased to serve the residents at Assisi Village and Stonehill Health Center until a few weeks before his death. An avid baseball fan, Father Kuhn once related that he wanted to finish his life like a baseball player, sliding headfirst into home plate just under a tag. He also related he wanted to die a poor man. We, his family, think he succeeded in both. The Kuhn family has always been close, and Father Kuhn was a driving force in keeping it that way. He was preceded in death by his parents, Sylvester and Elizabeth of Osage, by two sisters, Phyllis Drake of Honolulu and Joan Guest of Washington, D.C., 
two brothers, Robert M. Kuhn of St. Charles, Illinois, and Lieutenant Commander James P. Kuhn, USN, who died while on active duty in the Navy, and by his niece, Sister Maria Guest, of the Servants of Mary in Omaha, Nebraska. He is survived by three sisters. Father Kuhn also leaves over a dozen first and second cousins, 21 nieces and nephews, and 36 grandnieces and grandnephews spread from Maine to Hawaii and south to Mexico. Funeral services are coordinated by the Rife Funeral Home of Piasta and will be conducted 1 through 3 February in both Piasta and Osage, Iowa. On Thursday, February 1st, visitation will be at St. John the Baptist Catholic Church in Piasta, Iowa from 3 to 7 p.m., preceded by a rosary at 2 p.m., and followed by a wake service at 7 p.m. On Friday, February the 2nd, a funeral mass at St. John the Baptist Catholic Church in Piasta will commence at 2 p.m., preceded by a visitation in the church at 1 p.m. The funeral mass will be celebrated by the most revered Thomas R. Zincula, Archbishop of Dubuque. On Saturday, February 3rd, a second funeral mass will be celebrated at Sacred Heart Church in Osage, Iowa at 11 a.m., preceded by visitation at the church at 10 a.m. Interment will follow at the Sacred Heart Cemetery in Osage, Iowa. In lieu of flowers, donations in the name of Father Richard Kuhn to the Seton Catholic School in Piasta may be direct may be sent direct to the school or to St. John the Baptist Church in Piasta. Next, we remember Stephanie Sunshine Ann Malaro, age 48 of Dubuque, who passed away peacefully on January 27, 2024 at her home. A funeral service will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Thursday, February the 1st, 2024 at Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, 2595 Rockdale Road. Friends and family may visit from 3 to 7 p.m. on Wednesday, January the 31st, 2024, as well as from 9 to 10.30 a.m. on Thursday, both at the funeral home. Burial will be at Mount Olivet Cemetery. And we remember Alice June Cass Hines of Dubuque, who passed away on Friday, January the 26th, 2024. Visitation will be from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. on Tuesday, February the 6th at St. Anthony Catholic Church, where Mass of Christian Burial will be at 10 a.m. Reverend Stephen Rosonke will officiate. Burial will be in Mount Olivet Cemetery, Key West, Iowa. Egelhoff, Siegert, and Casper Funeral Home are entrusted with arrangements. Now we remember Rosalie Donahue, age 85, who found peace and was welcomed home to the arms of her loving God and husband John on January the 29th, 2024 at Stonehill Health Center. Family and friends may call from 4 to 6.30 p.m. on Thursday, February the 1st at Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, 2595 Rockdale Road, where a wake service will be held at 3.30 p.m. A mass of Christian burial will be held at St. Raphael Cathedral at 10 a.m. on Friday, February the 2nd with Father Dennis Quint officiating. The burial will be in Mount Olivet Cemetery, Key West. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be given to the Memory Care Unit at Stonehill Health Center or St. Raphael Cathedral. Now we remember Agnes M. Bernhard, age 93, of Bellevue, formerly of Dubuque, who passed away on Sunday, January 28, 2024, at the Mill Valley Care Center in Bellevue, Iowa, after a brief illness. Visitation will be held from 8.30 a.m. until 9.45 a.m. on Thursday, February 1st, at Cathedral of St. Raphael. 
the mass of Christian burial for Agnes will be at 10 a.m. on Thursday, February the 1st at Cathedral of St. Raphael with Father Dennis Quint as the celebrant. Burial will be in Mount Olivet Cemetery in Key West. Hoffman Schneider Funeral Home and Crematory is in care of the arrangements. Condolences can be sent to the family by visiting Agnes's obituary at www.hskfhcares.com. Now we remember Sister Anne Wiltus, who died January 26, 2024, at St. Dominic Villa, Hazel Green, Wisconsin. Her wake will be held at 6.30 p.m. Sunday, February the 4th at St. Dominic Villa. Her funeral mass will take place at 10.30 a.m. Monday, February the 5th at St. Joseph Church, Sinawa, with a reception to follow in the school cafeteria. Casey McNett Funeral Home is handling arrangements. Memorials may be made to the Dominican Sisters of Cincinnawa, 585 County Road Z, Cincinnawa, Wisconsin, or given online at cincinnawa.org slash donate. Now we remember Robert J. Mills, age 88, of Dubuque, Iowa, who passed away on January the 28th, 2024, at his home. A private burial will be at Dubuque Memorial Gardens. A private celebration of life will be held at a later date. Leonard Fielder Home and Crematory, 2595 Rockdale Road, is assisting the family. Next, Keith E. Beatty, age 76, of Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin, died on Saturday, January 27, 2024. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Thursday, February 1st, at Thornburg Grau Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Prairie du Chien, and from 10 to 11 a.m. Friday, February 2nd, at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Prairie du Chien, where services will follow. And we remember Karen R. Risen, age 76, of East Dubuque, who died on Tuesday, January the 30th, 2024. Visitation will be held from 2 to 7 p.m. Friday, February 2nd at Miller Funeral Home in East Dubuque. A mass of Christian burial will take place at 10.30 a.m. Saturday, February 3rd at St. Mary's Catholic Church in East Dubuque. Burial will be in East Dubuque Cemetery. Now we remember Hazel M. Spear, age 102, of Hanover, who died, Hanover, Illinois, who died on Saturday, January the 27th, 2024. Visitation will be held from 10 a.m. to noon, Saturday, February the 3rd, at Hanover United Presbyterian Church, where services will follow. Burial will take place in Log Church Cemetery in Hanover. Now we remember Donald E. Rice, age 73, of Fulton, Illinois, and formerly of Savannah, who died on Friday, January the 26th, 2024. Visitation will be held from 10 to 11.30 a.m. Friday, February 2nd, at Law Jones Funeral Home in Savannah, where services will follow. And we remember Gregory A. Wilhelm, age 52, of Dubuque, who died on Monday, January the 29th, 2024. Private services were held. Burial will take place in Mount Cavalry Cemetery. Bear Funeral Home, 1491 Main Street, is assisting the family. Now we'll turn over to the sports page and take a look at what's on TV today. In men's college basketball at 5.30 p.m. on the Big Ten Network, it's Northwestern at Purdue. At 5.30 p.m. on FS1, it's St. John's at Xavier. At 6 p.m. on ESPN2, Notre Dame at Virginia. On ESPNU at 6 p.m., Wichita State at Tulsa. 
7 p.m. on ESPN, Florida at Kentucky. And on ESPN Plus, it's Valparaiso at Drake at 7 p.m. And on the CBS Sports Network at 7 p.m., Northern Iowa at Bradley. 7.30 p.m. on FS1, it's Providence at UConn. At 7.30 p.m. on Big Ten Network, it's Penn State at Rutgers. 8 p.m. on ESPN2, Vanderbilt at Auburn. 8 p.m. on ESPNU, it's UAB at North Texas. 9.30 p.m. FS1, Boise State at New Mexico. And 10 p.m. on ESPNU, it's Santa Clara at St. Mary's. Women's College Basketball, 6 p.m. on the Peacock, Indiana at Maryland. And 6 p.m. on Big Ten Network Plus in Illinois at Michigan. 7 p.m. on Peacock, it's Iowa at Northwestern. In the NBA, 6 p.m. on the NBC Sports Channel in Chicago, Bulls at the Hornets. And 7.30 p.m. on ABC, it's the Suns at the Nets. And at 10 p.m. on ESPN, it's the Bucks at the Trailblazers. And in the National Hockey League, at 6.30 p.m. on TNT, it's the Kings at the Predators. Top story on the sports page today has to do with women's college basketball, and it's entitled Clark Has Big Ten Record in Sight. Caitlin Clark of Iowa is approaching the all-time scoring record in women's basketball of 3,527 points held by Kelsey Plum. The Hawkeye star has 3,389 points and is averaging 32 points per game. She is on pace to break Plum's mark against Michigan on February the 15th. Clark, last year's AP Player of the Year, had 38 points in a win over Nebraska on January the 27th. She also had 10 rebounds and 6 assists. Clark could move into second place on the all-time scoring list during tonight's game at Northwestern, which would mean passing Missouri State's Jackie Stiles with 3,393 points and Ohio State's Kelsey Mitchell 3,402 points. Passing Mitchell would also give Clark the Big Ten scoring mark held by Mitchell. Tip-off is 7 p.m. on Peacock. Clark has scored at least 40 points 11 times in her career, including three this season. Clark is also approaching 1,000 career assists as she has 958 and sits in eighth place all-time. She is averaging 7.1 assists per game. She is 29 assists behind former Providence star Shania Evans, or Shania Evans for 7th and 30 behind Nyjah Johnson for 6th. Susie McConnell of Penn State holds the NCAA record with 1,307. Plum holds the women's record after her standout four-year career at Washington from 2013 to 2017. The all-time college basketball leading scorer is LSU's Pete Maravich, who finished his career with 3,667 points. He did it with no three-point line in college basketball and in only three seasons from 1967 to 1970. Freshmen at that point weren't allowed to play on the varsity team. In high school wrestling, Stangs storm back. Hempstead earns bonus points in each of five final five matches to win regional final against North Scott. This is written by Tim O'Neill. Dubuque Hempstead needed just to weather the storm. Then the Mustangs took over. Evan Bratton clinched the victory with a 12-2 major decision over North Scott's Hayden Uloa 
in the penultimate match of the night, an Iowa Class 3A, number 7 ranked Hempstead rallied for a 38-25 victory over number 20 North Scott in a 3A regional final on Tuesday night at Moody Gymnasium. We tell them all the time it's going to take everyone, and tonight it really seemed like all 14 guys in that lineup contributed, Hempstead coach Brett Haas said. It was really fun to watch. The Mustang advanced to the state dual tournament in consecutive seasons for the first time in program history and will be making their fourth appearance overall when the tournament gets underway Saturday at Extreme Arena in Coralville. I don't think there would be a lot of people who thought we would be in this situation at the beginning of the season, so that's a tribute to the 40 guys on our roster, Haas said. The Mustangs just had to be patient to get there. Hempstead's Garen Christensen used a third-period escape to beat Cole Green 1-0 at 138 pounds to open the duel, a match Haas said Green won 13-0 in the opening week of the season. But North Scott took early control by winning six of the first nine matches. North Scott's Will McDermott answered with a pin of Lane Kiefer at 226, 144 pounds, and... Aaron Bergfeld won by fall over Hempstead's Dane Mangler at 150 to give the Lancers a 12-3 lead. Dawson Fish put the Mustangs back on the board with a 9-0 major decision over Benjamin Little at 157 pounds. North Scott's Adam Schneckloth added 9-4 decision over Pace McCoy at 165, Trey Feist won 9-0 major decision over Alexander Wiskus at 175, and Jace Tippett won 4-1 decision over Cam Smith at 190 to push the Lanthers' lead 22-7. Tate Woodruff survived an ultimate tiebreaker for a 6-5 victory over North Scott's Jay Little at 215 before the Lancers' Dawson Reingus won a 2-0 decision over Zach Conlon at heavyweight, but that's when Hempstead took control. Elijah Hyatt pinned Maxwell Davis at 244, 106-pound match. Landon Gottschalk won by fall over Cole Bruck at 113, and Mitchell Pins gave the Mustangs their first lead since the opening match with a pin in 2 minutes 29 seconds over Matt Williams at 120 pounds. After Bratton clinched the victory, Mitchell Murphy added a 59-second pin of Conlon Cruz at 132 to cap the victory. It's all about our guys, and that's what our coaches talk about all the time, Haas said. These guys work so hard, and you look down the line, and everyone is so happy for each other. Our guys just really love each other, and they fight for each other, and I think that was really on display tonight. It was awesome to watch our guys be so excited for each other. North Scott held off number 12 Clear Creek Amanda, Amana, excuse me, 41 to 30 in the semifinal. In men's college basketball, Hoosiers hold off Hawkeyes. Kalel Ware scored 23 points and grabbed 10 rebounds. Reserve Anthony Leal scored a career-high 13 points, and Indiana withstood Iowa's second-half rally and held on to beat the Hawkeyes 74-68 on Tuesday night to end a three-game losing streak. Indiana entered having lost three of four, Indiana hadn't beaten Iowa since February 7, 2021, in a 67-65 contest. It was Indiana coach Mike Woodson's first victory over Iowa. Northwestern remains the lone Big Ten team a Woodson-led squad hasn't beaten. Ware finished shooting 8-for-10 and 6-for-11 from the foul line. 
a former Mr. Basketball in high school from Bloomington, Indiana, Leal entered averaging 1.8 points per game and had only scored 14 points this season and just 16 points over the last two seasons. Mackenzie Mabako added 11 points for Indiana. Peyton Sanford had 26 points, Tony Perkins scored 22, and Josh Dix 10 for Iowa. Gabe Cups's three-pointer with a minute 26 seconds left gave Indiana the lead for good at 69-68 with one minute 26 seconds left, but Sanford's off-balance catch-and-shoot jumper off a cross-court inbound pass from Owen Freeman gave Iowa its last lead at 68-66. With 2 minutes 12 seconds remaining and trailing 66-64, Indiana's Xavier Johnson drove the lane, tried to throw down a dunk, but got fouled by Laji Dembele at the rim. In the contact, Johnson's feet came out from under him, and he appeared to land on his left hand and stayed on the floor, clearly writhing in pain before leaving for the locker room. Trey Galloway made the two foul shots in place of Jackson to tie it. Sanford's three-pointer with 13.08 left before halftime brought Iowa within 19.15 following Indiana's 15-7 outburst within the first five minutes, but the Hawkeyes went scoreless for seven minutes, and Indiana scored 12 to build a 31-15 lead until Sanford made a pair of foul shots with 6.11 remaining before the break. Indiana led 39-28 at the intermission. In other men's college basketball action, Illini upend Ohio State. Marcus Damask and Terrence Shannon Jr. each had 23 points, and Ty Rogers had 13 as number 14 Illinois beat Ohio State 87-75 on Tuesday night in Columbus, Ohio. Illinois held a 41-34 lead at the break after going 7-10 in the final 6-32 of the first half. Ohio State went scoreless in the final 2-16 of that span. The fighting Illini stretched their lead to 16 points in the second half. Rodgers posted the second double-double of his career, adding 10 rebounds. It was Shannon's fourth game back after sitting out six games because of a university-imposed suspension. Shannon is facing a rape charge in Kansas, but he was granted a preliminary injunction by a federal judge on January 19th that forced Illinois to reinstate him to the team. Ohio State got within 10 points after Jamison Battle made a three with a minute 54 seconds remaining. Battle scored 21 points, and Roddy Gale Jr. had 20 for the Buckeyes. Other scores from around the, the college basketball world. Georgia Tech defeated number 3 North Carolina 74-73. to South Carolina defeated number 5 Tennessee 63-59. to Number 9 Marquette defeated Villanova 85-80. to Number 25 TCU defeated Texas Tech 85-78. to Number 21 Dayton 83, George Washington 61. And number 23, Oklahoma, defeated Kansas State 73-53. to In the local and area roundup, Rams win again. The Rams, uh, let's see, Dubuque Sr. Pa- got past Cedar Rapids Xavier 50-36 to on Tuesday at Nora Gymnasium. Cascade defeated Anamosa 67-56. This is boys high school basketball, I believe. Also, Marquette Catholic 69, Calamus Wheatland 47, Bellevue 69, Beckman Catholic 31, Lancaster 77, Southwestern 67, Platteville 69, Mount Horeb 56, 
Potosi, 67, Belmont, 37. Highland defeated Benton, 77 to 66. And Stockton defeated Galena, 38 to 35. In girls high school basketball, Western Dubuque defeated Iowa City West, 58 to 57 in overtime. Iowa City Liberty, 68, Dubuque Wallert, 54. Iowa City High, 66, Dubuque Hempstead, 30. Bellevue defeated Beckman Catholic, 48-45. Columbus Wheatland, 66, Marquette Catholic, 47, excuse me. Solon defeated West Delaware, 70-41. Northland, 64, Maquoketa Valley, 37. Maquoketa, 58, Monticello, 30. Mineral Point, 48, Darlington, 38, and Lancaster defeated Schulzburg, 55 to 43. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Information Service for the Blind. <laughs>